Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Olivia, and this week, Isaiah, Madeline, and I spoke with Laura Wolk, a senior associate at Kirkland & Ellis, who was most recently a clerk for Clarence Thomas in the U.S. Supreme Court, where she was only the second blind clerk in the court's history. Laura was mentored at the University of Notre Dame Law School by now Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, for whom Laura testified at her recent hearings. In the course of the hearings, originalism, the doctrine embraced by Coney Barrett and her mentor, Justice Scalia, was referenced. But Laura was troubled that no time was given to what originalism really is, so she was eager to provide us with a deep dive into it. We delved into what judicial reforms Laura would and wouldn't like to see, what it's like to work for the Supreme Court, and why her training as a singer and a psychologist was the best preparation she could have ever hoped for. Thanks for joining us. My name is Isaiah Taylor. I'm currently a high school senior and also a lead civic fellow for Next Generation Politics, and I do a few other political organizations. I'm really just interested in seeing what age we're going into in terms of the Supreme Court and how will this affect the general public. Hi, my name is Madeline. I am a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm extremely passionate about creating a sense of community amongst citizens, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum. Hi, my name is Olivia. I am also a senior from New York City, as well as a lead civic fellow for Next Gen Politics and the National Director of Outreach and Engagement. And at this moment, I'm really, really curious to think about, and especially your perspective on how toxic partisanship has impacted the nomination and confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. So my name is Laura. I went to Swarthmore for my undergraduate. I studied psychology and music. I took a job after graduation doing social services and working in that field and just learned through that process that I still wanted to do something that was service oriented, but I did not think that psychology or counseling was what I was cut out to do. And that's how I discovered law school. And I had had a really narrow view of what I thought lawyers did. I basically thought they operated in the courtroom. I don't have anyone in my family who's a lawyer. So it was a really pleasant surprise to me to find out that, for instance, many senators have been lawyers, just all the things you can do with a JD. So I ended up going back to Notre Dame Law School to get my JD. And I went there in large part because I'm Catholic and it has a very strong Catholic identity. And so I wanted my legal education to be informed by my faith, or I wanted to be able to easily incorporate the two together. I graduated in 2016, and since then, I have clerked for three different judges. For those who may not know, a clerkship is basically a one-year position where you work with the judge to assist with preparing for arguments and also in drafting of the opinions. So I clerked for a judge, Janice Rogers Brown, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, so Federal Court of Appeals. Then I clerked for Tom Hardiman on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And then I worked at a law firm for about a year before clerking for Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court this past term. I will begin life back at a firm shortly, but right now it's pretty common for clerks to take a pretty big break after their Supreme Court clerkship just to decompress. It can be a pretty intense time, so I'm finishing up that time right now. You know, for those who might have some familiarity with with Justice Thomas, it probably is not a surprising thing to hear that I also call myself an originalist and a textualist. I think for me, it's been very interesting 
during the nomination process to hear what people think about originalism and how they characterize it. What I heard from the hearings was that a lot of people asked Judge Barrett what originalism is, and I think she gave great answers to that. In a nutshell, is the understanding that the best way to interpret the Constitution is to look at the public meaning of the words as they were enacted at the time. One thing that I think is easily misunderstood is that public meaning comes from the time that the text you are talking about was enacted. So for the Bill of Rights, that would be 1791. But for the amendments that came after the Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments, that would be 1868 and so on and so forth as you go up through the different amendments. So you are interpreting the words according to their public meaning at the time that the text was passed. Many, but not all, originalists are also textualists. That is basically the same idea, but mapped onto statutes. So not the Constitution, but the laws that are passed either by Congress or state legislatures. And the same idea pertains. So if you're dealing with a statute that was passed in 1910, you would interpret it according to the public meaning as it existed in 1910. The thing that I did not hear at the hearings, and I wish would have been explored a little deeper, is why originalism? There's a lot of really interesting questions that I think are very good to talk about, such as what do you do with the fact that slavery existed when the Constitution was ratified? And that's the most obvious example. So there's really interesting questions about that. There's really interesting questions about situations that the founders could not have possibly anticipated, like technology and globalization and things like that. The question is, why originalism? And it could be seen as a philosophy that really is exclusive and tends to leave those people who were not potentially originally included in the Constitution out of the conversation, or it could be seen as it's so narrow as to be useless because there are so many questions that are not explicitly addressed in the text of the Constitution. Speaking for myself, there are different views on this, but for me, there's this quote by Winston Churchill that says something like, democracy is the worst form of government except for all of the others that have been tried before. And that's how I feel about originalism. It's not this ideal philosophy. It's not this thing that gives you the best and most just and the best of all possible solutions to all questions. Not at all. It's just that it is the philosophy that is most faithful to the structure of the government that we set up. And that structure, that governmental structure, left almost all decision-making to the people, whether it's you know through federal legislatures or state legislatures. And so originalism, sometimes it is really, really hard. You have to do the best you can with the evidence that you can in order to get to the answer that you think the Constitution suggests. But it's more for me about the fact that when you are an originalist judge, if you come down with an answer, you're basically leaving as many decisions as can possibly be made left to the people. And there's a reason why our Constitution does include amendment procedures If the Constitution was meant to be updated over time, those amendment procedures would seem a little bit unnecessary. And if we look to the times in our country, yes, there have not been very many, but the country has come together and they have agreed to amend the Constitution in really monumental ways that bring us closer and closer and closer to the ideals of the preamble and the Declaration of Independence. So originalism is really more about process It's about keeping a small role for the judiciary and a large role for the democratic voices of the people. 
the more you allow judges to sort of update and insert themselves into the, the constitutional process, the less room you have for the people. And I think that, again, this is just my view, that we actually can see this being played out in the increasingly caustic nomination process, because we all realize that the Supreme Court has immense power. But that power, I would suggest, comes because of the increasingly legislative role that we have given to the court, especially like from the 60s onward. In the beginning, when the Supreme Court was first set up, it was actually very hard to get justices to even serve on it. Nobody wanted that job and people frequently quit because they wanted to go back to private practice or to do anything else really. It was not seen as a glamorous job. And I think it was designed that way because your role was really to be pretty modest and to just say what the law is and not what it ought to be. When you come to a textualist answer, you're not necessarily saying this is the policy I think is best, or even that what Congress did was the best of all possible solutions. You're just saying what the law is and then allowing Congress to fix it or change it or let it stand as Congress, as agents of the people. I remember reading an article in Time specifically about your interactions with your former teacher, Amy Coney Barrett, and textualism, right? How you were presenting the argument. And even though she is a textualist, she pushed back on you saying you needed more. So I was wondering, based on your really unique position here and the times we're in, if you could elaborate on your experiences with her and her as a teacher. Sure. So that particular example, um, one thing I should say is that I came to originalism and textualism quite late. Like I only really started discovering these philosophies in law school. So at the time I was still really figuring out my own view. And so I was defending the use of dictionaries as a quote unquote objective means of finding out the public meaning. Then Professor Barrett pushed back on that idea and just talked about, well, do you actually know how dictionaries are compiled? And the editing process and very popular dictionary really relied heavily on the New York Times. And so it's like, well, what does that say? Who's reading the Times and what population of society is that? So the idea was really to push back on this idea that it really is a truly objective metric and to be aware, at least, of like the subjectivity that can come into play. And for me, I mean, it was really good for me in terms of, you know, just becoming aware of my own philosophy. But this was one of many, many experiences over and over again where what Judge Barrett demonstrated was that she was aware, right, that she was very aware of the pros and cons, that she was up on all the scholarship and took criticism seriously. The philosophy that she ended up coming to and choosing, it's not some knee-jerk reaction or something that is guided by some extra legal commitment. It's something that she is continuing to pay attention to and pay attention to the criticisms on every side of every legal question. And so every time we talked about a case in her classes, Whatever the student was arguing, even if the student was arguing, you know, for a completely non-textualist argument, she would just flip and take that exact opposite role and point to the weaknesses in a non-textualist argument. So she's very gifted in that way. So I wanted you to just digest the hearings of Amy Comey Barrett. If you think the media's reaction to uh, the hearings was justified, whether she handled herself ethically in the hearings, etc., I don't think that the media's reaction was completely out of bounds. I've only paid attention to the last three hearings. I think the media, as in part because of the senators being very focused on legal questions, also tended to be focused on legal questions as well. There's two caveats to that. The first is that there was this very deep undercurrent 
that seem to suggest that Judge Barrett or originalists in general want to take rights away. They want to overturn the ACA. They want to do this. They want to do that, which is a suggestion that there's two things going on there. One is a suggestion that if you are a conservative person, you are pre-committed to certain policy goals, which is unjustified without any evidence to suggest that. The second is that as a judge, the person would be sort of disingenuously trying to sneak their policy goals in through the back door and reasoning backwards to get to the law. And the third is that a textualist thinks that their policy preferences and the answer that they come to by analyzing the statute are always exactly the same. And on that latter point, I can just tell you, like from being a clerk and just from doing this in my own experience, it's just not true. The Constitution pretty clearly contemplates capital punishment. It's explicitly in the Constitution, capital crimes. But I personally, I have very deep concerns about the death penalty. But if I were a judge, I would have to look at the law and see because it is constitutional and nothing has been done to amend it and apply that law with the understanding that the Constitution contemplates capital punishment. So it's just not the case that an originalist's answer and textualist answer and their policy preferences are always exactly the same. So the number one thing is this idea, the intent that is being attributed to originalists and conservative judges are secretly delighting in the idea of, you know, these potential cases that people keep talking about. I think the second thing is just that senators, they did a pretty good job of steering away from Judge Barrett's extra legal commitments, but the media did not. And so these articles about her family and her adoptions and accusing her of racism and accusing her of being subjugated to her husband, they're irrelevant, they're character assassinations, and they have nothing, absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with being a judge. And in that way, I just, I think that it's um, further contributing to this idea that we should dissuade people from ever accepting the nomination of the position of a justice on the Supreme Court, because when you do it, you know that you are going to put your reputation and your family's reputation and potentially the reputation of your friends and anyone who comes to your aid in serious jeopardy. It's disappointing to see the media going along with that. The public doesn't really get to see how politicians or anyone who holds office actually are as human beings. We kind of just label them as people who are meant to represent us or work on behalf of us. And there's not much media coverage of genuine relationships between these people and their friends, their colleagues, their mentors, and their students. Obviously, she is replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Supreme Court, who was able to reach out to both conservatives, liberals, and establish a sense of unity. Do you think that Amy Coney Barrett will be able to do the same? Or how do you think that all come into play? you know, I think Judge Barrett will follow the law. Her answer will be her answer. I don't think that she would make compromises in terms of what the answer is, right? Like she has said to us over and over again, like, I will follow the law wherever it leads. And that's just it. That's the answer. But when you say like reaching out in terms of just collegiality, I think we saw, hopefully, people who were paying attention to the hearings saw that on full display, that she responded to the senator's very difficult questions She was polite. She laughed. She took them seriously. Even the 10th senator asked the same question about the same case. She just responded as though it was the first time she had gotten the question. Those are all skills that I've seen in the classroom 
and that kind of um, respect and politeness and understanding of where and how many times she said, you know, Senator, I really understand why you would like me to be able to give you an answer to that question. There's nothing dismissive about her answers in terms of the people who were asking them. So I think that obviously, like those will be huge assets to the Supreme Court because the cases are intense and you have to get along. And anybody who is able to facilitate friendships and collegiality is just a total plus. Listening to your credentials, write your resume is impressive on any level. And so my question to you is, what obstacles have you overcome in the pursuit of these clerkships? And what have you found to be the most difficult, but at the same time, the most rewarding? What preconceived notions do you think people had about your experience that didn't exactly ring true? I would say the two main obstacles I faced, one is, I think, almost always unconscious bias. I don't think people are ever really aware of it in the sense of employers and sometimes even professors. It seems from my experience that what they do is think, my gosh, if I woke up tomorrow and I couldn't see anything, I would have trouble putting on my shoes, which honestly could be true, right? But then they're like, so therefore, I don't understand how you can put on your shoes, let alone do well in school or perform well at this firm or things like that. And I'm sure like this maps onto other conversations that you've had. In some ways, unconscious bias is really, really difficult to root out because people don't know that they're doing it. And disability is slightly different because there are so many different manifestations of disability. And I mean, no two people are the same, obviously, but no two blind people are going to live out their blindness in the same way. And so you could meet a blind person who does everything a certain way, and then you you could just plop all of those expectations onto the next blind person you meet. The other one is just straight out and out um, accessibility barriers. And I spoke about this a little bit at the Senate. There are a lot of things that by all rights should be completely accessible to people who use assistive technology, but accessibility has not been taken into account when they were designed or when they're updated. So one day something can be totally accessible and then your computer auto updates and then all of a sudden you can't use the program anymore. So there's this this misunderstanding that if something is digital, it must be accessible. And that's unfortunately very untrue. That's where you know mentors and allies and things like that have really come into play for me because it's really been the people and the justice is who are able to understand that there is a difference between maybe something that you're struggling with on the merits. There's something that you could improve that could make you a better employee or a better worker. And the difference between that and something that is completely out of your control. And the people who understand that accessibility is completely out of your control and they are willing to use their own positions and their own clout to help make the changes that are necessary or brainstorm workarounds. Those people have made an absolutely unbelievable difference in my life. I've had people at the firm and so many people who have been able to help me in that regard because it's impossible to do on your own. So another thing I was wondering is that you mentioned briefly earlier that in college you had studied music and psychology, which is quite an interesting leap into law school. Was there anything that that you learned while studying those two things in college that you really were able to take with you into law school and actually turned out to be more useful in a totally different field than you thought it would be? 
I think about this all the time. So I studied music academically, but I also trained as a vocalist. And I use those skills all the time when I'm actually doing arguments and things like that. And also just like all of those skills that you learn how to not show when you're nervous or if something is going horribly wrong, you just like dig deep and pretend like nothing bad is happening. And so, yeah, I actually have many, many times been like, well, this was not at all what I ever expected to be my main takeaway or like be so glad that I dedicated this much time to studying music, but it it has helped me in so many ways. I also actually sang all through law school. And so that was a very nice outlet for me to just get away from the books and do something more fun. I was wondering if there are any judicial reforms that you would like to see or you wouldn't want to see in the upcoming decade. If you're asking about expanding the court, I think it's a very bad idea. I think there is a reason that it was very unpopular when it was tried before. And that's the short answer. The long answer is there are many things that recommend the number of nine. A lot of people also talk about life tenure. I do understand the the drawbacks of life tenure and some of the things that go along with it, but there is something that is very stabilizing about having jurists on the court, maybe not for 40 or 50 years, but for 30 or so years. It's much easier for students to get a grasp of the law, and I think it actually makes things more predictable for people who are trying to order their lives around the pronouncements of the Supreme Court. If you had a lot of changeover on the Supreme Court and the federal courts, that would become a lot harder to do. I think like perhaps increasing the number of district court judges. I think there's some elitism at play there. The judges and the people who have clerked for them have a vested interest in not increasing the numbers too much because then the value of the judgeship goes down. But that's, of course, irrelevant. What matters is that litigants get justice and they get a speedy trial and they get the answers to their legal cases answered quickly. So I do think that there are some districts where increasing the number of judges would be a very good thing for everyone. And with that, before we close, do you have any questions for us? I'm curious to know if you paid much attention to the hearings. Did you learn anything useful from them or did you feel like you had the exact same thoughts about what a justice bear would look like coming out of them as going into them. I want to wait for the entire pandemonium from the media to kind of calm down before I even like watch anything from the hearings. But I really resonate with your opinion about the way that she held herself there and how a lot of the stuff that the uh, media is saying right now is kind of irrelevant to what she was uh, chosen for. And it kind of uh, reminds me when Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris as his vice president nominee, how everybody was talking about her past with the death penalty and other things on her record. So yeah, I'm just kind of waiting. I did watch the hearings. Obviously, I was in school for a solid amount. So I watched the, you know, replay kind of highlight reel equivalent of them. I was pretty saddened. I don't think it made me totally despondent. I think a little bit more angry, in my opinion. I think a lot of the senators, especially from the Democratic Party, use this as like a more performative moment than a serious one, right? I do think there were a lot of valuable questions that were asked and an important investigation. And I think at the same time, a lot of people wanted those sound bites to put on YouTube the next day. I wanted to prove a point, not as much kind of investigate her record and her potential as a Supreme Court judge, right? If that would happen, we wouldn't have seen the, or heard the same question asked seven times over in a slightly different wording. And so I think it made me a little bit upset at those senators and potentially the use of confirmation hearings in general, right? We saw uh, it was similar in the way they used it with Kavanaugh, right? And I think this differs tremendously 
from the confirmation of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I understand they're different human beings on a most fundamental level, but I think it kind of speaks to the partisanship in our, our country and in our political system. What really resonated with me was her saying continually, right, my opinion doesn't matter, and I don't want people to try to legislate things to the court because this is not the place for, for social change. I didn't totally agree with everything she said, but I appreciated her emphasis on keeping opinion out of things. And it made me pretty optimistic about her potential as a judge. So yeah, the kind of duality there. I'm not going to lie. When I first heard about the nominee choice, felt kind of sketchy about it. But as you stated today with the example with the dictionary, I think that's really powerful. How she was aware of being clear bias, even... I think that really speaks to her place on the Supreme Court and how she will at least attempt not to have a lot of bias towards either side of the political spectrum. I definitely agree that she seems to have a lot of genuinity, and that is something that I admire a lot. And although not all of my beliefs completely align with hers, I think that judging her as a person and not as a political figure, which again, I think that we can often get wrapped up in. She seems to be a very welcoming, warm, kind person, and which is really nice to have represent us in one of the highest levels of government. And that gives me a lot of faith, regardless of being in a different party than her, because I do identify as Democrat, although some of my beliefs are a little bit more center than left, I would say. Again, like I can't really make a judgment um, yet so far. I don't know enough about her and how she will act as a judge. So I'm looking forward to there being more objective media releases about her and to just learn more information about her as a person instead of just jumping to conclusions. That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for NextGen Politics. <laughs>